This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. If we haven't met, we're thrilled that you are spending part of your Sunday with us, either uh, in the room or online. You're joining us um, in, pretty well into a series of messages on the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the power, the person, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you're jumping in, you know, uh, quite a ways in. So if you're unfamiliar with that, I'd encourage you to go back uh, on our website, on the podcast, and listen to some of those foundational messages about how the Holy Spirit is God, how he is part of the Trinity, how he's part of God's gift to us. Um, you can listen to uh, how he plays a role in our salvation, how he helps us in our weakness, all of those types of things. Today, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Acts, and we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, uh, and we're going to make our way all the way to Acts chapter 19, and uh, it will take a while. So um, just let you know, I'm doing the best I can, but there is a lot of information that we want to cover today as we talk about this idea of spirit baptism. And so what we see in the book of Acts is an experience of the Holy Spirit that Jesus designed for every person who puts their faith in him. Uh, it is called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It is called being filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus phrases it at one point, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. But all of them have the same underlying terminology in Greek and, and basically a, a short summary way is for us to, to talk of it in terms of spirit baptism, being immersed in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So so if this idea is new to you, uh, my only request is that you just kind of open your heart and ask the Lord, will you speak to me? And if this is the truth of scripture, will you confirm it in my heart? And if it is, will you show me what I need to do about it? And I think that's, that's always the proper posture we want to take when we come to uh, study the scriptures and come to learn from the scriptures. And as we do it, Jesus leads us into life and into experiences of his spirit's power. Um, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 1. So the, the setting in verse 4 that we're about to read is after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples. He's teaching them. He's instructing them. He's teaching them many things. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, we find not just a teaching, but a command that Jesus gives to the disciples after his resurrection, but before his ascension. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so what we want to understand from the, the very beginning when we talk about spirit baptism is that spirit baptism is a separate experience of the Holy Spirit from salvation. So it is salvation first and then spirit baptism. We see this in Jesus' instruction. He says, John baptized with water. John's was a baptism of repentance, it says later in Acts, pointing us towards this idea that there is a work of the Holy Spirit in our life that leads us to repentance, leads us to enter into a relationship with Jesus. If you weren't with us on, on October 23rd, we talked all about that. It's the Spirit who convicts you of sin. It's the Spirit who reveals Jesus as your Savior. It's the Spirit who testifies, who tells the truth to you when you surrender to Jesus, that you now belong to him, that you're in the family. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. And so every Christian, every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the place where the Spirit dwells. And yet what Jesus shows us is there is also a second experience of the Holy Spirit that in here in Acts chapter 1, he phrases being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, again, remember Jesus's audience when he's giving this instruction. It's post-resurrection and to a group of believers who have given up everything to follow him. So they've surrendered their lives to him. They have left homes and jobs. They are going wherever he goes. They are doing whatever he does. Even though they do not yet have the terminology for it, these disciples he's teaching are Christians. They are those who place their faith in Christ. And Jesus tells them, now that you're Christians, your first job is to wait to experience being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus presents us with this idea of there is a work of the Holy Spirit called spirit baptism that is separate and subsequent to salvation. So there's a work of the Holy Spirit that leads you to salvation. 
And then there is another work of the Holy Spirit that fills you with his power to do the things that Jesus is calling you to do. So to be clear, when we talk about spirit baptism, you do not have to experience spirit baptism to go to heaven. You do not have to experience spirit baptism to walk with Jesus or live in community. You do not have to experience spirit baptism to get the benefits of being a son or a daughter of God. You don't have to experience spirit baptism for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. In fact, what we'll see as we work through the book of Acts this morning is the primary purpose of spirit baptism is that Jesus gives it to us to give us the power we need to do all that he's called us to do. So the Holy Spirit works in your life to convict you of sin and assure you of salvation. So every Christian walks with the Holy Spirit and every Christian is invited into a second supernatural experience of the Holy Spirit that is undeniable and fills you with all the power you need to accomplish all that God will ask you to do. And so we're going to kind of work our way through the book of Acts this morning. As we do, you'll see spirit baptism is referenced on many different occasions in many different settings, among different people groups, under the leadership of different leaders in the local church. And the, the sheer number of occurrences and the diversity of situations in which spirit baptism comes should cause us to stop this morning and ask, why is this such a repetitive theme in the story of the early church? And I believe what we'll discover is it's a repetitive theme because it was the command of Jesus that the apostles embraced not only for themselves, but also for all who would put their faith in Christ. And as you read the story of church history, you find that continues in different pockets of the church from then until now. And over the last hundred years, there has been a renewed emphasis on this work of spirit baptism, but it is not a new emphasis. It is simply a renewal of what has always been the path and what has always been the plan. And so again, I know this may be new to some of us this morning. And so all we're going to do is, is walk through these scriptures. And I'm going to trust that the Lord will speak to you as he's done to me, as he's done to many others. And that this is uh, an experience that you, if you have not had, will find yourself uh, beginning to ask the Lord, is this something you have for me? So let's start in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we see that spirit baptism is a promise from Jesus. He tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what we're going to see as we, we work our way through these stories in Acts is a, a two-stage experience of the Holy Spirit. First, the Holy Spirit leads us to be Christians. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus as Savior. Second, the Holy Spirit fills us with his power in a supernatural way to do the things that God is calling us to do. So Acts chapter 1-8, this is a promise Jesus is making to his disciples. Again, it's the, the same group for the most part who he has given this command we just looked at in verses 4 and 5. And what Jesus now says is you will wait in Jerusalem. He has told them earlier you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now he tells them when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, what that means is the Holy Spirit will come on you and he will fill you with the power you need to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so he's pointing us to this idea that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to us because he's going to call us to a task that is beyond our natural ability. As you keep reading, the, the disciples, they obey. Jesus ascends into heaven. They return to Jerusalem. They gather in an upper room and they begin to pray, to seek, and to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. But they have absolutely no idea what that's going to look like, when it's going to come, or how they're going to know when it's happened. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so what we see on the day of Pentecost is the, the early church was obedient. Jesus told them to wait, so they waited. He told them not to leave Jerusalem, so they stayed in Jerusalem. And as they begin to pray, and as they begin to seek, and as they begin to long for an experience that they had no frame of reference for, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to them. 
And he arrives in such a supernatural way that among the 120 who are gathered in the upper room that day, there is no doubt that this is what Jesus had promised. As the spirit begins to move, the 120 do not look at each other and say, do you think this is it? Is this what he promised? Is there something else? Are you doing that? Am I doing that? They know there is a supernatural, undeniable experience, and it's a pattern we'll see throughout Acts, that when we experience spirit baptism, we don't wonder if we've experienced spirit baptism. You know it when you find it. And when you experience it, it changes everything. The other thing to notice is in verse 4, it says, all of them were filled. So the 12 apostles are gathered in the upper room, but there are also others with them. There's 120 of them who have gathered in that room who are all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it reminds us that the gift of spirit baptism is not just for the apostles. It's not just for church leaders. It's not just for missionaries or evangelists. It's not just for the particularly holy or the especially spiritual. But the gift of spirit baptism is something Jesus designed for every man, woman, teenager, and child who has placed their faith in him. The only prerequisite for spirit baptism is that you are a Christian. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, then this gift is now available to you. And when you receive it, it will be in a wonderfully personal and supernatural way that you will not have to doubt if it's actually happened or not. But you, in the same way you know, this is when I was saved, you will be able to say, this is when I was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is when I was baptized, immersed in his power. We see this continuing as you read through the story of the early church. Acts chapter 8, verse 14 through 17, we find the story of the Samaritans receiving the Spirit. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Samaritans, they are uh, the unlikable neighbors of the Israelites. They're viewed, uh, and, and, and really the Israelites kind of use some offensive terms to describe them. They're viewed as, uh, as like half-breeds. They're viewed as not fully God's people. They're viewed as those who have kind of intermingled with the world and yet still tried to retain some of their identity as God's people. And in fact, if you remember the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, the reason that story is so scandalous is because Jesus makes the rejected Samaritan the hero of the story because he's the only one who acts like a follower of Jesus. And so the, the, what happens here in Acts chapter 8, verse 14, it says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. So, so I want you to, to understand what's happening here. Jesus had told the disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. And when you receive power, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The disciples received the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet it doesn't appear that any of the 12 have anything to do with the gospel taking root in Samaria. And so maybe it's someone else who's in the upper room that day. Maybe it's someone in the crowd on the day of Pentecost who receives Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. But somehow the gospel has now taken root in Samaria. The apostles in Jerusalem, the leaders of the church, they hear this and their response is, well, let's go check it out. And so they arrive and it says they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So uh, again, what's happening? Peter and John go out on behalf of the other apostles. They are full of the Holy Spirit. They arrive in Samaria and they see that the rejected people have accepted Jesus Christ. And there is nothing deficient in their salvation. Peter and John don't uh, go ahead and lead them through a sinner's prayer just to make sure they did it the right way. Right? They, don't, they don't say like, we know you heard from others, but we walked with Jesus. Let us tell you how it really is. What do they do? They go and they say, the gospel's here. They identify these men and women as new believers. And then Peter and John, it says, they, they went so they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So again, a two-stage experience of the Spirit. The Spirit shows up in Samaria, introduces people to Jesus Christ, they surrender their lives to them. The Spirit confirms you are Christians. You are full participants in the kingdom of God. You're the sons and the daughters of God. No matter what the Jewish people have said about you, you have now been brought in. You are fully accepted, fully welcome. There is nothing left to become, be done for you. Christ has been sufficient on your behalf. They are just as much sons and daughters of God as any of the apostles or any of you or I are today. 
And yet when Peter and John come, they don't look at that and just say, well, that's great. We're going to move on down the road. But they look at this new group of believers and they say, we've come to pray that you will receive the Holy Spirit. And so once again, the apostles model what Jesus had taught them, that there are two experiences of the Spirit, one that leads you to salvation and one that empowers you for ministry. And so the the apostles placed their hands on them, and it said they placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now we'll come back to Acts chapter 8 potentially next week and talk about there's, there's something that happens here that is incredibly supernatural because of the response of the crowd around them. We don't have time for that today, so we'll just keep moving and and acknowledge, again, that that two separate experiences of the Spirit. We see it again in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we find the story of Saul's conversion. Most of us know Saul as the Apostle Paul, the author of 13 letters in the New Testament, the early church missionary who takes the gospel to the Gentiles, the one who embraces the work of the Holy Spirit, writes about the work of the Holy Spirit, magnifies Jesus in all that he does. But before he was Paul, the church leader, he was Saul, the church persecutor. And Saul was a devout Jewish man who had set out to destroy the way of Jesus because he found it to be at odds with the religion of his ancestors. And so he gets letters and authority from his local leaders in Jerusalem, and he sets out to begin to persecute the church all around Israel. As he's on his way to Damascus, Saul has a salvation encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus knocks him to the ground. He blinds him. He reveals himself as Lord. And Saul responds in obedience. This is Saul's conversion moment. Saul then goes into town. And for three days, he waits in a room blind and uncertain of what will be next for him. While he's waiting, God speaks to another believer in town named Ananias and tells him, Ananias, you are going to go pray for this man named Saul, and he's going to be healed, and he will receive the Holy Spirit. And Ananias is understandably uncomfortable with this assignment because he knows who Saul is, and he knows what Saul has done, and he doesn't want to walk into a trap. And yet the Lord compels him, and so in verse 17 it says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So once again, we see a two-stage, two separate experiences of the Spirit. Saul has been converted by the work of the Holy Spirit, and then he receives power from the Holy Spirit as Ananias places his hands on him. Saul becomes Paul, who writes much of what you and I know and read about the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the operation of the gifts within a local church. And it all began on this day when Saul the Christian becomes Saul the Spirit-filled Christian. He already was a place where the Spirit dwelt, and yet there was this separate subsequent work to salvation that welcomed him into a new experience of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, we find the story of the Gentiles receiving the Spirit. It might not mean a lot to you and I today, but it should because it means you have received the Spirit because of what happened here. The Gentiles were the outside of the community people. They were worse than the Samaritans. They were the unclean ones. They were the pagans. They were the ones who lived their lives in joyful rejection of God and in a sinful embrace of every form of evil that the world had to offer. The majority of us in the room, unless your family has a a strong Jewish background to it, this is you. You are the unclean one. You are the one that no one thought the gospel would ever take root in. You were the bad soil that the Jewish people thought, don't even waste the seed. It's not going to take root. And yet, when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes not only to save those who are seeking Jesus, he comes to save those who are far outside of the established covenant community of Israel. And so as you read the story of Acts, one of the ways that Jesus confirms his plan is for every man, woman, and child from every nation, culture, and language on the world to belong to him is by sending his disciples out to share the good news, by enabling those people to respond to Jesus, and by filling them with the Holy Spirit as a sign that his spirit has been poured out on all flesh. And so in Acts chapter 10, what you find is Peter, one of the disciples, one of the original disciples, one of the apostles. Peter has had a vision. 
And he's had a vision of uh, different types of food, unclean things that he has spent his whole life avoiding and not eating. And in his vision, God tells him not to call anything unclean that he has called clean. And, and about the time that Peter makes sense of this vision, some men show up and they invite Peter to come with them to a Gentile household because God has spoken to a Gentile man and said, go over to this house in this place and ask Peter to come and speak to you. And so these men come and, and Peter, it's, it's kind of that aha moment where he recognizes that's why I had the dream. Uh, I would have previously called you unclean, but I'm going to go. He shows up in their home and we can see he hasn't completely left behind all of his uh, former way of life because he walks in the door and announces, I would never have come here before because you all are unclean and I am clean. But God has told me not to call you unclean people unclean anymore. And I'm in your unclean house to talk to you about clean things. <laughs> Right, it's not the exact translation, but, but you can hear the undertones of it in the passage. And what happens in, in Acts, uh, here in Acts chapter 10, is, is really pretty amazing. Because we've been saying that Acts presents us with kind of a, a two-step, two-stage experience of the Holy Spirit. And, and I hope you're hearing me. It is not a two-step experience of salvation. You are fully and finally saved when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. But there is another experience of power from the Holy Spirit for everybody who places their faith in them. And so what happens here is Peter shows up and they just say, hey, we were supposed to ask for you and tell you to talk. So what do you have to tell us about? Well, Peter takes the, the biggest open door that any pastor, preacher, Christian has ever been given. And he just kind of plows right through it and starts telling them about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, that when we place our faith in him, he forgives us of our sins. He leads us to new life. And in verse 44, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speak in tongues and praising God. And so, so what's, what's fascinating here is sometimes we think of well, if, if you're saved by the work of the Holy Spirit and then there's a work of spirit baptism, there's probably a gap in between. But I love this story in Acts chapter 10 of the Gentiles coming to faith and receiving the Holy Spirit because the Gentiles have no religious baggage with them when they come to receive Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now for, for many of us, we have some religious baggage because we grew up in church and we think we know the way it works, right? And, and the way it works is you get saved when a, a pastor, a, a preacher, a, a youth camp speaker, somebody at FCA at school, a friend, a family member, you get saved when you get a clear presentation of the gospel and you're able to articulate it back to them. And you're able to ask them questions. And at the very end of their presentation, they get to the point where they say, would you like to place your faith in Jesus Christ? Right? And, and maybe you were in a setting where that was an altar call. Maybe you were in a setting where it was everybody bow your heads and close your eyes and I'm in count to three and then you stand up. Uh, maybe it was a, hey, well, no, you're a Christian when you sign this card affirming that you've placed your faith in Christ. Well, no, whatever it is, we have all of these things that we've attached. The Gentiles don't know any of that. And so what happens is they actually steal Peter's thunder. It's, it's a little rude, right? Because Peter, when he preaches on the day of Pentecost, he finishes his sermon and the crowd says they were cut to the heart and they asked Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter tells him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And, and so it's, it's, this, is how, this is how church is supposed to work, right? We finish the sermon. We give the opportunity to respond. People respond. We all celebrate what God has done. But the Gentiles, these are hungry seekers who are desiring to know who God is. And as Peter is standing and explaining to them, they get saved without asking Peter if they should get saved or not. They don't wait. They jump to the end. Right? They're, they're like the people that go on Wikipedia to see how the movie ends because they can't stand the suspense anymore. They just jump right to the end. And then Peter is still talking, not knowing that his crowd has already moved to become Christians. And the way Peter knows that they have moved to become Christians is it says the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And they begin to speak in other tongues as a sign of the Spirit's presence. And it's in that moment that Peter and the other believers who are with him look at each other and say... They're Christians. The spirit has been poured out. And, and so, so what we learn from Acts chapter 10 is it is a separate and subsequent work, but it can appear almost simultaneous. 
So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're thinking, well, that spirit baptism idea sounds cool, but I probably need to follow Jesus and follow him for a while before I kind of wade into those waters. What the scriptures teach is, hey, again, the only prerequisite is, have you said yes to Jesus? If so, here comes the Holy Spirit. And it could be immediately, it could be days, it could be weeks. It doesn't, there's no set time frame. But sometimes the Spirit does come in power and people are saved and almost immediately following that, they have this powerful personal experience of spirit baptism in their lives. So Acts chapter 10 teaches us all kinds of things. It teaches us the Holy Spirit is for you and me, us unclean, dirty Gentiles. And it teaches us that when Jesus shows up, that's all that's needed for the power of the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And when we place our faith in him, we've now been welcomed into this experience. You keep reading through Acts and we find additional examples of the Spirit being poured out. Acts chapter 19, Paul is traveling on one of his missionary journeys. In verse 1, it says, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. So what's happening here is Paul has encountered a group of seekers that he initially mistakes for Christians. They, they seem to have the appearance of Christians. They act like Christians. They talk like Christians. They are spiritual people. They probably talk about the scriptures. They talk about hearing God's voice. They talk about all these things. And so Paul's first assumption is, have you received the Holy Spirit? No, we haven't. We don't know what that is. Okay, well, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. Well, Paul, again, understands this, the way the Spirit works. And before they can receive the Holy Spirit, they need to receive Jesus as their Savior. And so we see it says, Paul said to them, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. So Paul, operating under the power of the Holy Spirit in a moment, recognizes what I thought was happening is not what's happening, and I need to adjust my whole ministry approach. And so I'm just going to shift from I have the Holy Spirit message ready to go to I'm going to shift to the Jesus message. And so he just tells them about Jesus. It says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men and all. So, so what's happening here? Paul encounters a group of people who are spiritually minded and seeking the things of the Lord. He asks them if they know about the Holy Spirit. They say no. He asks them if they know about Jesus, and they don't appear to. He tells them about Jesus. They surrender their lives to Jesus. They're baptized. And then Paul doesn't settle and go on down the road. But when he has this group of new believers, and, and, and this is maybe perhaps a challenge for us, because sometimes when it comes to sharing our faith, we think, when I've hit that point of I shared my faith, and now I can go on to the next group. We think of missionaries going to unreached people groups of maybe they toil and they work and they finally see conversions and they're, they're testifying to the life change that is there and they come back to tell us the stories. Paul would tell them, your job isn't finished. In fact, with this new group of believers, as soon as they are baptized in water, Paul places his hands on them to pray that they will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says that they are all baptized in the Holy Spirit. There were 12 men in all. And I don't know if that's significant or not, but it's not the first time that Jesus chose 12 men to do something and filled them with the power of his Holy Spirit. And so what's Paul say? He says, well, I guess if Jesus did it for them, why don't we just, oh, there's 12 of you? That's cool. Let's pray. And then all of them are received and filled the Holy Spirit. Not just the ones who feel called to ministry, not just the ones who are influential members in their community, not just the ones who are especially, especially mystical or spiritual, but everyone who accepts Jesus Christ on that day is filled with the Holy Spirit when Paul places his hands on them. And so all through the story of Acts, all through the story of the early church, we see this idea of salvation first, then spirit baptism. And so, so what I hope you understand today is that the idea of spirit baptism is not the creation of any pastor, preacher, or teacher. It's not the development of a denomination. It's not a new move in the church. But this has been the pattern that Jesus has established at the beginning and intends to be carried until his return. And if we look at church history and see periods of absence from this experience, that does not decrease its validity. It's just some sad segments where we turned away from the truth and the authority of scriptures. 
And so, again, if this is new to you, my encouragement is that you understand that this is the clear teaching of Jesus, the clear teaching of the apostles, the clear experience of the early church, and the clear reason that the church grew as exponentially as it did. People said yes to Jesus, and then they received the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he had called them to do. And it's the same pattern he has for you and I today. If you have said yes to Jesus, salvation first, you belong to him completely. And whatever you do with spirit baptism has nothing to do with your standing as a son or daughter of God. And and we'll talk more about this next week, because sometimes one of the objections people have is, well, one time somebody told me if I didn't have that, I'm not a Christian. That's not what the scriptures say. If you belong to Jesus, you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can operate in the gifts of the Spirit. You can display the fruit of the Spirit. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit. The Spirit leads you and guides you. He speaks to you and through you. And he does all of that because you belong to Jesus. And your salvation is perfect. It is final. It is secure. There is nothing left to be done. So seeking spirit baptism is not about becoming a better Christian. It's not about assuring your salvation. It's not about leveling up in your relationship with Jesus. You have achieved everything. Jesus has for you when you surrendered to him. Because it's not about you, it's not about your work, it's not about your effort. Salvation first is secured through Christ alone by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. But after you have said yes to Jesus, Jesus himself is clear there is a second experience of spirit empowering presence that you are designed to seek until you receive. And when you receive it, It will come on you in an undeniably personal, powerful, supernatural way. And it will fill you with a special impartation of the Spirit's power to do the things God is calling you to do that are beyond your natural abilities. He commanded the disciples, the apostles, to be filled with the Spirit so that they could be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the reason he still commands you and I to be filled with the Spirit is so we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. For as long as God calls his people to do things beyond their natural ability, he intends for us to do it by the power of Spirit baptism. This is what the scriptures teach. And as a church that believes in the authority of scriptures, we don't just want to selectively pick and choose to obey the ones that are comfortable or culturally acceptable to us. But we want to say, Lord, whatever you say, we want to sit under all of it and we want to receive all of it as well. Now, if if you kind of go through the the story and the life of Jesus, you find that spirit baptism and the introduction of the Holy Spirit is not something that just showed up after Jesus the resurrection of Jesus or after the ascension. The idea of spirit baptism, in fact, is not even an an invention of the early church, but it is the foundation of Jesus's ministry. Spirit baptism is a promise from Jesus for us. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, we find a, a group of people interacting with John the Baptist. And John tells them, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, as we work our way uh, through this series on the Holy Spirit, at at some point, we're going to spend several weeks talking about Jesus as our example of spirit-empowered ministry. And, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really good. It's going to be fun. We're going to learn a lot of things. It's going to challenge you in some, some really cool and exciting ways. But what I want you to understand this morning is this promise of spirit baptism from Jesus isn't something that Jesus kind of, as he's about to leave, looks at us and thinks, I don't think they can do it on their own. I probably better give something just in case. But from the beginning of his ministry, He came not just to reveal himself as Savior, prove his divinity, and rescue us from our sins. Jesus came not only to restore our connection with the Father, but what John tells us is from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, part of his mission was to give us a special experience of power with the Holy Spirit. And so the whole time Jesus is working and ministering, when he's healing the sick, when he's feeding the multitudes, his resurrection, his ascension, all of it is not just proving Jesus is your savior. It's also proving Jesus is the one who will baptize you with the gift of his Holy Spirit. 
And, and many of us, we, are, we stand ready to receive his salvation. We stand ready to receive his provision, his deliverance, his guidance, all of these other things. And what we're trying to understand is from the beginning, also in the mission of Jesus, is to fill you with the power of his Holy Spirit. And so again, this idea of spirit baptism is not a development in the church. It is the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to save his people from their sins and to fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit so they can share that good news with others. And it was true then, and it's true now. And so we just keep coming back to it. Now, you, you might object and think, well, that's just John the Baptist. He, you know, he ate locusts and wore camel hair and lived in the desert. You can't trust those guys. Like, I got an uncle like that, and I want to I ask him for directions, much less about the mission of Jesus Christ. So, so let's, say even, let's say you discount John the Baptist. Well, let's go back to what Jesus told us in Acts chapter 1. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Spirit baptism is a promise from Jesus Christ to everyone who places their faith in him. Which means our response to that is a humble acknowledgement that I need spirit baptism. That you need spirit baptism. Now, again, this is, this is where it kind of gets a, a little tricky sometimes when you talk about spirit baptism because people have all kinds of different experiences, different backgrounds. You might have grown up in a church where they told you spirit baptism is not a thing. That was only for the apostles. That only happened. You are not Peter, Paul, James, or John, so just stop it. You don't even need to read those. Right? Acts is only the history of the church. It's not, there's nothing for us to learn there that actually applies today. Like the, these lessons are taught in churches. And yet we never find Jesus saying, you will receive power, but only for the first generation of Christians. We don't find the apostles traveling to Ephesus and finding a new group of believers and saying, you're filled with Jesus, that's great. We have the Holy Spirit, but we can't give him to you because we're the apostles. You, you guys just good luck, right? Do what you can. You don't see that. What you see is Jesus commanded it, the apostles embraced it, and the apostles shared it. And then the church continued to share it. And as the church spread, Jesus was revealed as Savior, and then people saw an experience of spirit baptism to be filled with his power. And if Jesus made you the promise that you need the power of the Holy Spirit, then it means he intends to lead you into some positions and situations where you need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you can walk into that position and situation with the power of the Holy Spirit, or you can walk into it in your own power, but you're going there either way. And I, I don't know about you, but I would rather walk in fully equipped with everything Jesus has for me. Right? And, and there's, there's no other promise of God that we are hesitant to receive. Right? If, if, if today, if we were talking about the gift of salvation, well, yeah, I want that. I want to be saved. I want to be rescued. I want to spend eternity with the Father. If today we were talking about the gift of forgiveness, of being made clean, all of us would say, that's absolutely what I want. I want my sins to be separated from me. I don't want to carry that shame anymore. I don't want to carry that guilt anymore. If we talked about the gift of God's provision, we'd have two hands up of give me all of that. I want every form of provision he has, right? If we talked about healing, yes, Lord, I, I want healing. I want to see, receive that. If we talked about the gift of his guidance, of his leading, of his delivering, we'd say yes to all of these. And then Jesus comes and says, you need to receive the Holy Spirit. And we say, I don't know. I think it can get weird. I've heard that, 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 that sometimes it's like supernatural. And I, I don't know if Jesus really fully understands that it's 2022. And we live in America. We don't, we don't do that stuff anymore. We've got other resources. We've got other abilities. Like I can Google stuff and I can wiki translate stuff and I can do all these things. Like, I, I mean, I, I understand why they needed it then, but we're, we're pretty sufficient now. And yet Jesus never puts a qualifier on his command for his people to receive the Holy Spirit. And he never puts an expiration date on his command for his people to receive the Holy Spirit. He just says, if you belong to me, you need the Holy Spirit for what I'm about to ask you to do. 
And then we might, we might have all kinds of excuses as to why that's not going to happen to us. But I want you to hear the, the words of Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and the people are asking what all of this means, he tells them, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Spirit baptism is a gift from God for every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church or not. It doesn't matter how wild, sinful, or dark your past might be. It doesn't matter if you are currently struggling with sin as you follow Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait till you're perfect You don't have to wait till you've got everything all in line. What does Peter tell us? He says, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. On the day of Pentecost, Peter promised that the Holy Spirit was for you. You are the one who was far off. I am the one that the Lord did call. And when he called us, it was not just into salvation, but was also into an experience of spirit baptism. So if Jesus promised it, I need it. And if I need it, I can't be afraid of it. And so again, as a, as a pastor, I understand sometimes that when you start talking about the Holy Spirit, and especially when you talk about spirit baptism, uh, people get nervous. Because you've seen a lot of weird stuff blamed on the Holy Spirit. And I get it. Like, I, I grew up my entire life in a Pentecostal church. And, and uh, you know, you say that in, in different settings. And I remember a couple years ago, we were at a, a basketball tournament. And I was talking to a guy, and he was asking me about, like, oh, what, you know, where do you pastor? And I told him Christian Chapel. Where did you go to school? And I told him I went to Central Bible College and the Assemblies of God Seminary. What church did you grow up in? I grew up in First Assembly of God in Topeka, Kansas. And, and he kind of got a funny look on his face. He said, you know, my dad was a Baptist pastor. And so I thought we were about to have a really cool conversation about how uh, we both grew up at pastor's kids and different things like that. And that's where I thought it was going. He's like, my dad grew up a, a Baptist pastor, and I heard about those Assemblies of God people. I said, oh, yeah? What'd you hear? He said, well, that's, that's like, I mean, do sometimes do people call you guys Pentecostal? And again, I'm thinking like, hey, let's have, we're, so we're about to have an intelligent conversation. We're going to talk about, well, you know, like that originates in the day of Pentecost, but it's not really like a descriptive thing. It just means we're open to the gifts of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. And I, but I didn't say anything. I just said, yeah, sometimes they do. And he's like, snakes and stuff? Like, no, no, no. I grew up in the city. Like, I don't know what happened out in the woods, but no, that was not happening. And, and so sometimes you just, you have this perspective. Like you, you have YouTube just like I do. And some of you, even as we've started Holy Spirit, you've went home and Googled like weird Holy Spirit stuff. And then you've watched the videos and you've seen the shaking and the dancing, the falling out and the running around. You're like, if that's what the Holy Spirit does, I don't want it. I don't want any part of that. I don't want anything to do with it. Right? But if that's where you're at this morning, if it's this fear, either because someone taught you that the gift of the Holy Spirit is not for today, or because you've seen some wild excesses, I would encourage you not to blame the Holy Spirit for the ridiculous behavior of other people. Right? Just, just go back to the scriptures. What does Jesus promise? He doesn't promise that you're going to shake a leg, bark like a dog, or run around the church seven times. He doesn't promise that you're going to walk up on campus and tell some girl, the Holy Spirit said we're supposed to get married. And she's like, I don't, I don't know your name, bro. The Holy Spirit better speak to me. Double now, because you're weird. Like, you've seen weird stuff, right? You, like, so I, and I, like, I've watched people. I've watched the effects of mental illness be blamed on the Holy Spirit. I've watched the effects of abusive leadership be blamed on the Holy Spirit. I watched terrible handling of the scriptures be blamed on the Holy Spirit. Right? And, and any time that happens, I just want to tell you, it's not the Holy Spirit. He's God and he's good. And he has good things for you. And so you don't have to be afraid of the gifts that God has for you. In the same way you don't fear salvation, you don't have to fear spirit baptism. But if this is what God has for us, then we're just going to open our hearts. We're going to open our hands. and We're going to say, Lord, we trust you. Will you just give us this gift? 
Jesus addresses kind of this, this underlying fear that we have at times of receiving gifts from God. He tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is a loving Father who gives good gifts to his children. The arrival of the Holy Spirit is a supernatural experience in your life, but it is not designed to embarrass or humiliate you. The supernatural testimony is designed to assure you that you have received this gift of spirit baptism. I would also encourage you, in the same way that there have been terrible things done in the name of Jesus, terrible things done in the name of the church, you have not given up on Jesus and you have not given up on the church, so please do not give up on the Holy Spirit. He is God's gift to you, and he is a good gift intended to give you all the power you need to do all that God is calling you to do. And then the, the last thing we want to consider this morning is that spirit baptism is a command from Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, we've read it a couple times already, but let's go back to it one more time. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, Christian Chapel, no one will ever force you, your children or your teenagers, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. No one's ever going to make you feel bad about having questions, doubts, concerns, or uncertainties in that area. No one is ever going to make you feel like you are less than a Christian because you are not actively seeking spirit baptism or have received it. We believe we are sons and daughters of God. When we say yes to Jesus, we are one family. And that, that crosses outside of our church. It crosses denominational lines. It crosses with every person in the world who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We are now together and we will link arms and work towards anything God calls us to work towards. And yet we do also sincerely believe as a church, I believe personally in this gift of spirit baptism as the scriptures teach. But we're not going to argue about it. We're not going to fight about it. We're not going to shame anyone into it. All we're going to do is just invite you. Just study the scriptures and ask God if this is true and if it's for you. And if you come to the point that you think, I I believe it is, and we'd love to pray with you and we'd love to join our faith with you. And we'd love to ask the spirit to pour out his power, to baptize you in his power. And we believe he'll do it. But if you're not there yet, that's fine. So so what I don't want is I don't want anyone leaving here today thinking I'm not hundred percent on board. I don't think I belong at that church anymore. That's not it at all. Yet at the same time, Don't mistake the fact that we don't pick fights about the Holy Spirit to mean that we don't believe in the essential nature of spirit baptism. And we believe in it, not just because of our own experience, not just because of the accounts we see in the book of Acts in the early church. We go all the way back here to Acts chapter one, verse four and five. And it says, and he commanded them. We believe that Jesus Christ has commanded his people to seek spirit baptism. You can't baptize yourself in the Holy Spirit. All you can do is seek it and surrender to it. And so for the disciples, that involved going back to Jerusalem and waiting until they had experienced it. And yet somewhere along the way in church history, we have embraced the commands of salvation. We've embraced the commands of holiness We've embraced the command of the Great Commission. And when it comes to spirit baptism, we've tried to turn it into a suggestion or an option. But Jesus never intended that. What does he say? And he commanded them. He didn't ask them. He didn't invite them into a debate. He commanded them. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And so so today, what I want to gently kind of push you towards is regardless of your background, are you willing to submit to the authority of scriptures? And are you willing to obey the command of Jesus? We we have all kinds of of language that we use in our day-to-day conversations to try to soften the authority or directness of a request. 
Right? You send emails for work or school projects to, to sometimes teammates or maybe somebody who works for you to your boss and you're making requests like, hey, just a reminder, this project is due on Tuesday if you have time to get to it. Hey, I could really use your help if it's not too much trouble. My go-to is, is when I text a request to someone or especially to, to help me or do something, my go-to is, if not, no worries. Hey, if you guys are free to, to help me move this, I could really use it. It's a little too heavy for me. If you can't make it though, if not, no worries. Hey, I'm not gonna get over there to pick my kid up in time. Do you think you can give him a ride home from school? If not, no worries. The truth is, if not, I'm worried. Because they're just gonna hang out and they're gonna wait there. And I'm gonna look like a bad dad. So I really need you to do that, but I don't wanna look off pudding. So if not, no worries. When Jesus tells the disciples, he commands them. He doesn't say, go back and wait in Jerusalem to receive power from the Holy Spirit. If not, no worries. He tells them, no, here's, here's what you're going to do. There are three people in my life that I have never once texted the words, if not, no worries. My three children, right? Because why would I? take the trash out. If not, no worries. <laughs> Just take the trash out. Hey, heard you and mom had a rough conversation. Remember, you better be respectful. If not, no worries. Hey, curfew's 11. If not, no worries. Hey, you're out of money. If not, no worries. Like, I don't do that. Why? Because there's, a, there's a, an authority in my relationship with my kids. And I'm not trying to abuse it but I'm definitely recognizing it. And there are times that I know you might not like it, but I know what's best for you. And I'm not gonna, if not, no worries you in really important situations. And when Jesus speaks to the disciples and when he's speaking to us through the scriptures about the gift of spirit baptism, it's not an option for the super spiritual, for the hyper charismatic or for the people who grew up in it. He says, if you belong to me, you need to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit until you receive it because then you will have power to be my witnesses, to do everything you need to do everywhere that I will take you and in every situation. And so we have to humble ourselves and come back to this point and just say, Lord, if you've commanded it, then I wanna receive it. And so we wanna do that because it's what the scriptures teach, because it's what Jesus commands. But I also believe we need to do that because at Christian Chapel, I sincerely believe we are on the verge of our next great chapter as a body of Christ. In 2024, we're gonna celebrate our 50 year anniversary as a local congregation. And it's an amazing story of God's provision. It's a story of God working, starting with a group of just four men and women in an apartment over in South Tulsa and just exploding through the power of his Holy Spirit. It's a story of, of a local congregation that is, has developed a global reach around the world. It's a story of local ministries that have been launched in our community that have literally impacted thousands of people. It's stories of babies that are alive today because of ministries that came out of Christian chapel and adoptive homes that were open to children that were not wanted. It's the story of your friends, of your family, of your coworkers who found their faith in Jesus Christ through the ministries of Christian Chapel. And so over the last couple of years, as we've kind of had that on our horizon and we've been thinking about it and praying about it and starting to plan for it. Over the, the last year or so that this theme is something that God has been planting in my heart. And as I've shared it with our staff, with deacons, with other people in leadership roles, as some of my mentors, some of the missionaries who come through in so many words, they've all acknowledged the same thing. Christian Chapel is positioned to begin writing their next great chapter. And I don't know what that next 50 years will look like, but I know its success will be rooted in two things. Do we continue to elevate Jesus as savior? And do we continue to surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit? And if we will do those two things, 
the next 50 years, we'll see hundreds of thousands of men and women surrendering their lives to Jesus through the people and ministries of Christian Chapel. And it will happen in our community as you say yes to Jesus and are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He will inspire your speech and your actions to share the gospel with your friends and family members. It will happen around the world as God raises up and calls out missionaries from among us. But it will only happen as we receive all that God has for us. And so many of us today, we've taken our place as his sons and his daughters, but we have not yet received the gift of his Holy Spirit. And so I wanna encourage you just to begin to pray and seek that. Do it in service, do it. If you wanna to come to the altar, you're welcome to. If you wanna do it in the prayer room with one of our pastors there, waiting to meet with you. This Wednesday night at 6.30, we're gonna have a, just a, an hour of prayer and seeking the Holy Spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about what it means and then we'll give you an opportunity to seek that. And again, we're, we're not trying to pressure, not trying to bully. We're just saying, if this is what the scriptures say that we need, then we would like to receive it because we wanna do all that God has for us. And we don't want our hesitancy to surrender and submit to the Holy Spirit to keep us from receiving the power we need to do the things that Jesus is calling us to do. So if you'll stand with me, I wanna pray for you. Bow your heads and, and close your eyes, please. Jesus, we come today and we pray if there are those in the room or online who've not yet surrendered their lives to you today, may they make that decision to move from darkness to light, to ask you to forgive them of their sins and receive you as their Lord and their savior. And Jesus, the rest of us, we come today asking you to pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Lord, you see our backgrounds, you see our familiarity or unfamiliarity with these scriptural ideas. And we just come today, Lord, laying all that down and just trusting you. You are God and we are not. And so if you have commanded us to receive the Holy Spirit, then we come in humble submission and surrender to ask you to pour your Holy Spirit out on us. But encourage you where you are, just begin to pray those simple prayers of Jesus. I want all that you have for me. Jesus, I want everything that the scriptures describe. Jesus, I sense the spaces in my heart and my calling where I need more of your power. Jesus, will you release your Holy Spirit in my life? Will you baptize me in your power? Will you give me an unmistakable experience of your Holy Spirit? that I will know I have all that you intended for me. Just begin to pray those prayers of surrender. I can't baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Your friends or family can't. Jesus is the baptizer. Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. And so you're just coming saying, Jesus, will you fill me? Jesus, will you release the gifts of your spirit in me? Jesus, will you baptize me in your spirit's power? Jesus, will you overcome my doubts? Jesus, will you overcome my fears? Jesus, will you humble me? Will you overcome my pride? Will you overcome my, my hesitation to embrace your supernatural presence? Holy Spirit, will you come and begin to pour your power out on your sons and your daughters? We believe that this promise is for us and for our children, for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord our God will call. So Jesus, we pray that you would pour your spirit out. Would you do it in this room, in these moments? Would you do it in the prayer room as we respond and ask others to join us in those prayers? Will you do it this Wednesday night as we gather together with those who wanna seek the gift of your Holy Spirit? Lord, I pray that you will release the gift of your Holy Spirit as, as people are driving in their cars, as they're praying in ho at home, as they're joining with other believers to seek the Spirit. Lord, will you release the Holy Spirit in our home groups and small groups? Will you release the gift of your Spirit anywhere that we join together, surrendering to your power and your presence? Lord, I pray for those who have said yes to Jesus, those who have received this gift of spirit baptism. Will you help us, Lord, to take up our responsibility to share this gift with others? Will you empower us for witness? Will you empower us for ministry? Will you overflow and overwhelm us with the presence of your spirit? Jesus, may we not be satisfied with people acknowledging they belong to you, but may we introduce them to the fullness of your spirit, to the fullness of your promise, to all all that you have for us. 
Jesus, we believe you're calling us to things that are greater than us. You're calling us to dreams that are beyond us. You're calling us to tasks and responsibilities that overwhelm us. And in those spaces, we pray that we would be filled with the power of your Holy Spirit, that your gifts would be released, that the fruit would be on display. Jesus, will you come? Holy Spirit, will you come? We come with an attitude of surrender and submission asking that you would fill us with your power, fill us with your fullness, fill us with your spirit. Father, we believe you're a loving God who gives good gifts to his children. So will you come today and move among us? Will you come today and release the spirit in personal and powerful ways? Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.